So we are looking at Acts chapter 26. This is our final time in the book of Acts. And this is a really kind of appropriate way to end this series. Because we are looking at this moment when, once again, Christianity is confronting the culture. And the culture is confronting Christianity. As we've looked through the book of Acts uh, for the past 14 sermons, we have seen a consistent theme of confrontation. Uh, Just a couple of weeks ago, we were in Athens, and Paul was confronting the idol worship there. Then the following week, we were in Ephesus, and Paul was speaking against uh, the worship of Artemis, and there was a crowd, and they were whipped up into a fury and a frenzy as Paul challenged what they were worshiping and said, these stone idols, they're no gods at all. So everywhere we go, both Jewish and Gentile, we've seen the gospel of Christianity being preached and as, he, as Christ is preached as Lord, he is confronting everything else that people might be tempted to worship. And we are looking at a trial between a, uh, where Paul is effectively giving an account of himself before two authorities. He is speaking to a man called Festus, who is the Roman governor of the region, and a man called Agrippa, or to give him his full name, Herod Agrippa II. So Paul is being confronted between, by the Jewish and Roman authorities. And why are we here? Well, back in Acts chapter 21, we saw Paul arrived in Jerusalem. Last week, we were in um, Miletus. Paul was speaking to the elders. He said, I'm, I'm going. He was going back to Jerusalem, eventually to go to Rome. And as he comes to Jerusalem, he is confronted by a crowd of Jews who are essentially outraged because they've heard that Paul is, in their words, speaking against the temple, speaking against our traditions. Really what they're saying is, what's this gospel that Paul is preaching is a threat to us and our people. And so the crowd is whipped up into a frenzy. Essentially, the Jewish people want to kill him. And Paul is um, arrested by the proconsul in Jerusalem. And effectively, he's imprisoned for his own safety. And eventually, he gets handed over to a man called Felix, the Roman governor. Felix goes back to Rome. Then he passed on to Festus. And now Festus... The Roman governor of the region brings in Agrippa, this uh, Jewish leader, this Jewish king of the region, says, basically, help me understand this, Agrippa. You're, you, you know the Jewish traditions. Why, why are the Jews so angry with Paul? Paul's going on to Rome. He's going to face Caesar, but Festus wants to be ready to basically tell him, to give him, give him something to report. So he gets Agrippa in, and we have this incredible scene where Paul is brought before these two authorities, and there's a great contrast in the scene. We have Festus, who would be wearing his uh, kind of purple robes. Perhaps, uh, sorry, uh, Festus would be wearing um, his uh, red robes, the Roman robes. Um, Agrippa may well be wearing kind of royal purple robes, wearing a crown, the kind of great pomp and ceremony representing these two authorities. And on the other side, we have Paul, who is in chains, wearing a simple tunic, a short man by all accounts. And you see this great contrast going on between these authorities and Paul. But despite the kind of great prestige of the authorities that Paul is speaking to, Paul is remarkably confident. And he shouldn't be confident, really, should he? Because he's experienced, who's he facing? Herod, Agrippa II. He comes from a, a lineage of rulers who have been opposed to Christianity. His great grandfather, Herod the Great, is the man who was on the throne when Jesus was firstborn. And do you remember the wise men come looking for Jesus, and he basically sends, and he sends them away, and then he massacres the innocents. He kills the baby boys aged between zero and two because he's threatened by the news of the Messiah. 
That's his great-grandfather. Then his uh, great-uncle, uh, Herod the Tetrarch, is the man who beheads John the Baptist. And then his father, Herod Agrippa I, is the man who kills James the Apostle and um, imprisons Peter in Acts chapter 12. So this, this Agrippa who he's standing before comes from a great lineage of murderous rulers who are deeply opposed to Christianity. You'd think that Paul would be fearful. But what I want you to see, and as, you, as I read this passage to you, I want you to hear Paul's confidence. Paul's confidence. And I want us to hear the call to become fearless like Paul. Take up his example. So, so Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So you can imagine Paul standing there in his chains before him and the assembled uh, dignitaries of the region. And then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am go I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. And then he goes on to talk about his life. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my nation, my own nation in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, they're willing to admit it, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers." to which our 12 tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. He's talking about the hope of the Messiah. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Saying, you Jews, you believe in a God who created the universe. Why is it so incredible to you that, that the Messiah would be resurrected? And he's, of course, been establishing his Jewish pedigree because they are claiming that he is speaking against the Jewish traditions. And then he goes on to describe his opposition to the Christian movement. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. And that's why he then makes his way to Damascus. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. He was going to round up and attack the Christians. And then something life-changing happens. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we'd all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. That really means it's hard for you to resist the will of God, hard for you to resist the inevitable. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. He's commissioning him. 
delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. This is the life-changing moment that hangs over Paul's life ever since then. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and to great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, must die, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Saying, look, the prophets already said all of this was going to happen. Christ would die and be resurrected. But at the, moment, at the mention of resurrection, Festus, this Roman ruler, is befuddled. That's what he says. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. He's talking about Agrippa there. The king knows these things. He's Jewish. He knows this, what I'm talking about. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he'd not appealed to Caesar. I want you to see the confidence of Paul in this passage. He is being brought before the assembled dignitaries, the Jewish and Roman authorities, and rather than really making a defense or shrinking back, he does the very opposite of what you might expect. Instead, he says, I want to take this opportunity to persuade you that what I'm preaching is true. He seeks to convert them. He seeks to persuade his judges, not of his own innocence, but of the fact that the Christ is who he said he is, that the Messiah is the one who was promised by the scriptures, and so they should believe. And you can hear the, the kind of almost questioning or at least surprise in Agrippa's voice when he said, after such a short time, would you persuade me to believe in this? He's surprised. Think of the, the kind of confidence. Think of the, the, the strength. I mean, I'm gonna, I hesitate to use this word because I, none of, some of you won't know what I mean. Chutzpah, right? There's a Jewish word, chutzpah. It's like, think of the cheek of this man, he, that he would stand here and make such a claim that Jesus is the living God and seek to persuade us when we have him on trial. 
Remember, he's a man of small stature, wearing a plain tunic with his chains on both his wrists, and yet he dominates this moment. And you know this is not unusual for Paul. You see this again and again in the book of Acts, the, the Areopagus, as he stands in Athens and tells them their learning is kind of worthless because the living God has come and revealed himself to them. Or when he's in, Art- when he's in Ephesus, he says, this great Artemis, who you built this great temple to, is worthless. Come and worship the living God. And my question as I reflect on this passage is, what would, what would happen to London if every Christian looked like Paul? What would happen in this city if everyone in this room took on the confidence and the urgency that we see in Paul in this moment and across the book of Acts? I'm absolutely confident that lives would be changed, that many people would hear the gospel. Just if today we said we're just going to follow Paul's example, we're going to go out into London and we're going to preach the gospel, I'm absolutely confident that God would work through that to reveal himself to many. There's such potential in the church. And the danger is that potential is wasted. Because we don't look like Paul. Because we don't carry his confidence, his urgency, that kind of motor that drives him all the way around the Mediterranean basin, preaching the gospel, going from synagogue to synagogue, city to city, despite beatings and all sorts of persecutions. He keeps on going. Why don't we look like Paul? Why don't we look like him? Because this This confidence that we see in Paul, it's it's the urgent need of the hour for us as Christians today. Because just like we've seen in the book of Acts across this great theme of confrontation, so too we are in a moment of confrontation with our culture. It's inevitable as you preach the gospel, as you preach that Christ is Lord, you will challenge the worship of idols around you, the things that the others worship. As you challenge the worship of self that we spoke about, in previous weeks, as you challenge the uh, unconstrained sexual expression of our culture, there will be those who feel threatened by the Christian faith. Just as the Jews are threatened by Paul's proclamation, so too there will be those in our culture who are threatened by the proclamation of the Christian faith. Just as Paul is accused of being out of his mind, so many will accuse you of being a religious lunatic. My father is not a Christian, and we do our leaders' days. I might have told you some of this. We do our leaders' uh, times in Maidenhead, near where my parents live, just outside of London. And sometimes my dad will come down and sit, meet the leaders on the, on the Friday night, and we'll take the leaders away for 24 hours. And, um, and afterwards, he always goes to, he always talks to my mum, and he says, they're such lovely people, religious lunatics, but such lovely people. <laughs> <laughs> such lovely religious lunatics. <laughs> And I think, you know, that's good. <laughs> We've achieved something. <laughs> Eventually, he'll see that it is Christ's spirit at work in us that makes us such lovely religious lunatics. Um, my point is, have you ever had that? Have you ever someone, someone said to you, are, are you out of your mind? Aren't you so, why are you believing something so irrational? So against d- uh, evidence, so to speak. We're going to face the same accusation that Paul has. And so the moment demands a confidence, a posture of fearlessness just like Paul. And isn't this what our culture longs for? We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that longing for confidence in our culture. And where do they want that confidence to come from? The self. The longing for self-confidence. You see it in all sorts of places. One illustration that bears out something of the tragedy of that is a 
an interview I read in Sunday Times magazine with a lady called Rebecca Taylor, who's in her mid-30s, and she publishes music under the label Self-Esteem. Anyone heard of her? No one heard of her? Um, clearly, a better music taste than me. I never actually never <laughs> barely listened to it, but in the, and she's been nom nominated for a Mercury Prize and a Brit Award, so she must be making some kind of headway. And she preaches body positivity and self-love. That is kind of the message of her, her singing. But what is, what is truly ironic is that she pursues this self-esteem and she is struggling with deep insecurity at the same time. Her song, one of her songs says, stop trying to have so many friends. Don't be intimidated by all the babies they have. Don't be embarrassed that all you've had is fun. Prioritize pleasure. She's speaking to the insecurities of many young women as she speaks. But there's a tragedy that she carries those same insecurities. She says, this is what she says in the interview. She said, the past six months, I've been really low. I've got a ton of pain I carry every day. It's hard. I'm this positive, empowering woman, but the terror is in my veins constantly. And she speaks to the inner voice. It says, you don't look like this. You don't look like that. There's a tragic irony that the woman who, who preaches body positivity and self-esteem cannot answer the insecurities within herself. And really what she's exposing is what I would describe as the sham of self-confidence. The sham of self-confidence. The sense to which many in our culture would look to themselves to puff themselves up and give them some kind of confidence in themselves, but it's not, it doesn't deliver. Because who can, tell, who, can, who can tell you that what you think about yourself when you think negative thoughts, who can tell you those negative thoughts are lies? You cannot, if you're just looking to yourself, how do you defeat the lies in your own head? It's not enough just to be, ignore the haters when the haters is yourself. We don't need self-confidence. What we need is God-confidence. Our culture is looking for confidence in the wrong place. And look at Paul. He has an incredible confidence, but not because he has a confidence in himself, but he has a confidence in the living God who brought him here and has helped him up to this moment. So we have to look. What makes Paul so confident? What made this man one of the most influential public intellectuals in human history. They write 70 or 80 pages of letters in the New Testament, and yet he's had more impact than any of his classical contemporaries. Why did he have such an impact? It's this confidence. I want to give you five short keys to his confidence. First of all, he's convinced that what he's preaching is true. So it raises the question for you, are you convinced? Behind Paul's willingness to powerfully and courageously confront culture is a deep conviction of the truthfulness of what he preaches. And this is fantastic news because it says, your faith does not depend on your feelings. You hear this, this, this message a number of times when Festus is, is kind of befuddled by what he's saying, confused, you're out of your mind. What does Paul say? What's his response? Verse 24. Sorry, verse 25. I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. I'm speaking true and rational words. And where does he take it back to? He takes it back to the resurrection. At least twice in this passage, he references the resurrection. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? He's saying that this faith is not built on kind of spiritual myths, or ideas, or, or kind of a claim even that necessarily we've heard from God. Actually, this, the, the Christian faith is unique because it rests on a historical event. 2,000 years ago, one question, did Jesus rise from the dead? If he rose from the dead, then your faith is real, 
and you can live for Christ. And if he didn't rise from the dead, it's all worthless. Actually, that gives incredible security about the Christian faith. You're not wrestling around looking for whether or not you feel it to be true. Your feelings will come and change. One um, writer described feelings, Lewis Mead's, feelings are flickering flames that fade with every fitful breeze. Feelings are flickering flames that fade with every fitful breeze. It's a kind of tongue twister. I'll get you all to say it at the same time next time. Um, The sense to which feelings will come and go. And he's speaking about romantic feelings, but even feelings around faith. One day you'll feel it great. You'll say, I really want to worship God, and that's great. And the next day you'll say, I don't really feel like he's with me. And in that moment, you have a choice. Are you going to keep on worshiping even when you don't feel it? And because the Christian faith is, a, is based on an objective event, based on the resurrection of Christ, based on the prophetic testimony of the prophets through the hundreds of years before this moment, leading up to the great crescendo of Christ's death and resurrection, it says that even when you don't feel it, you can come back to Christ, that you can worship him, that you can read your Bible, that you can pray, that you go through the disciplines even when you don't feel it, because it's true. Because Christ is still Lord, even when you don't feel it. Remember, we shared the uh, statistic that today, 74% of millennials believe that whatever is right for your life or works best for you is the only truth that you can know. Most people in our culture say, look, how do you know what's true? What you feel. But Christians say, no, we know what's true because we saw him rise from the dead. And we have this unbroken testimony to the church throughout the ages that testifies to that great central reality so we can keep on walking, even when we don't feel it. But some of you say, well, I don't know if that's true or not. And I, th- I, would, I would hear right now, give you one little segment, one little moment, say, think about the evidence. Think about what happened to the disciples. You see, these men are all fearful following Christ's death. Think about Peter, a man who was one of Jesus' closest followers, who denied him three times in the run-up to his death. So he, he's got to a place of being ashamed of Christ. He's fearful. Why? Because he thinks, well, maybe the authorities are going to do to me what they're doing to him. And you see, before his death, he's afraid and and scared, and the disciples are in a room, quietly hiding away after his death, and then they are transformed. And they are willing to boldly proclaim Christ in every part of of the Jewish and then the Roman Empire. Peter stands in the middle of Jerusalem, the place where Jesus has been just crucified, and says to the whole city, you crucified him. This is an incredible transformation in the disciples. And what you have to say is, how can you explain that? How can you explain that? Something's happened to them. How, they, they, are, they went from being fearfully hiding away to boldly proclaiming Christ in every corner. What happens? They've seen the risen Christ. When you look at all the evidence, actually that is the best, best conclusion to come to. They have seen the risen Christ. Their lives and your lives are changed forevermore. There's much more we could say on that. But I would say one thing, don't stay in doubt. Some of you have come in here today and you're, you're kind of half in, half out. You're not really sure whether it's true. Maybe there's a part of you that says, yes, it's true. Maybe I was raised in the faith, but I'm not really there. And what about those other people who believe there's other things? And how do I make sense of this? Do not, it's okay to come in there. Do not stay there. Christ is calling for disciples who are willing to lay down their lives, to build their life on his truth to choose to surrender their relationships and their, uh, how they deal with their finances and every part of their life to come under his lordship. You cannot do that if you're in a kind of half in, half out. If you're kind of like, I'm not really sure whether it's true, you're not like Paul. 
Paul is convinced in the truthfulness. It is that conviction that this is true that drives him in his mission. So too, if you're half in, half out, you can't stay there. You've got to come to Christ. You've got to examine the evidence. There's plenty of books we could recommend. You've got to come to the church and see the evidence in people's lives. See the way that Christ is changing the people in this community. You cannot stay in a posture of half in, half out, doubting. You need to be convinced like Paul. That's the first thing. Second of all, he has encountered Christ. Do you regularly seek to encounter God? See, the thing that looms over this story is Paul's encounter with the living God on the road to Damascus. Paul's life has been profoundly changed by a moment of encountering God. And actually, this sets a pattern for his life. It goes on. It's a pattern of encountering the living God, of God speaking to him. And that is such a key part of his confidence and drive in his mission. So my question to you, brothers and sisters, is do you follow his pattern? Do you live in a posture of wanting to encounter the living God in your walk with him? This encounter looms large in, in Paul's life. Even if you look at, I, don't, I haven't done the maths, but it's 12, verse 12 to verse 18. It's a significant chunk of this great defense. And just think about that for a moment. Paul is standing before the Jewish and Roman authorities. This is a man of incredible learning. He could have come up with all sorts of different intellectual, apologetic arguments to defend his faith. But he says, no, you know why I'm standing here and why what I'm saying is is true? It's because I encountered the living God. He met with me. He spoke to me. His light shone into my life. And you see this then, the pattern again and again in Paul's life, that he is driven by a constant posture and pattern of prayer and reading the scriptures. Think about when he, after his, uh, his conversion, he goes to Arabia and meets with the living God there. In um, 2 Corinthians, Paul speaks uh, about a kind of profound moment of encounter that he has with the living God. He speaks about himself in the third person. He kind of seems to not want to highlight himself in the story, but he speaks about uh, one, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up in the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows, but I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or the out of the body, I do not know, God knows, and he heard things that cannot be told, that a man may not utter. He's speaking about his own intimacy with the living God. It's this, it's this pattern of encountering and listening to God that drives Paul on. You can't have outward faithfulness without inward relationship. And so my question to you, if this is setting up a pattern, is do you realize the great privilege that you have of walking in step with the Spirit, reading your Bible and praying, and in, that, in those simple disciplines of encountering the voice of the living God? That this, this moment in Damascus, perhaps it does feel particularly profound, and I won't, I, I won't deny that. There's something incredible about this moment. The light shone from all around. It may not look quite as dramatic as that, but actually, isn't that what's happening when you read the Bible each day? As you invite God to come and speak into your life, as you read scripture with the express express intention that you're not just reading words, but the living God speaks through his word. That he is there to, he's doing work in your heart through his word. As he encourages you, as he strengthens you, as he reminds you of his grace when you feel defeated, And he encourages you to keep on going when you feel like you have nothing left in yourself. My friends, the Christian life is never a solo enterprise. And of course that means community, but first of all, it means a living relationship with the living God, a posture of dependence, a posture of pursuing encounter with the living God in your own room, 
just praying, just reading your Bible. They sound kind of ordinary, and yet that is the way that God speaks and strengthens his people. And you know, it's fascinating, even Jesus models this. In Isaiah 50, it's one of the servant songs, one of the passages that speaks about Jesus hundreds of years beforehand, and it's written in the first person, but this is what he says. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning, he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. I just love that picture. Imagine Christ saying those words. That's what Isaiah is prophetically speaking as Christ hundreds of years to come. Jesus is saying, morning by morning, the Lord awakens and he speaks his word. He opens my ear to speak. The living God on earth relied on the voice of God, relied on the strength that comes from the Father, relies on the words that he is receiving from the Father. Why would we think we could do it on our own? Why can we think that we could do the Christian life without that same posture of dependence on the living God? So he's encountered Christ. Do you regularly seek to encounter Christ? Thirdly, he has been transformed in the process. Paul's great uh, summary, in a way, of what's happened here is to really describe the transformation that has taken place in his life. I wonder, do you underest- are we in danger of underestimating the change that God intends to bring about in a man's life? You have to see that Paul is utterly transformed by his encounter with the living God and his ongoing walk with him. Are we seeking to be changed by Paul? Because it's impossible to seek to change others. It's impossible to seek to be a confident, fearless disciple proclaiming Christ in the world if we're not first submitting to the living God and inviting him to change us. There's a kind of hypocrisy about that, isn't there? That we might say, I want to be a a one who who declares the, the, the reality of the living God to the world, but who doesn't first submit his own life to be changed by God. See the transformation that is going on in Paul's life. You see, just, just hear what the kind of, the depth of the description that Paul describes. So, so first start with verse 9 to 11. He's describing himself as a man who is a, a great enemy of Christianity. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And he goes on to describe the way he's persecuted the church. And I love this. It's, it's very blunt, very brutally honest. I punished them often in the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. I tried to make them deny Christ. Sounds even physical in that, like almost like a blast, you know, deny Christ. Like there's a great violence in, that, how he, in how he's speaking. And then, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign, foreign cities. Raging fury consumed by anger, vitriol against this Christian movement. And then think about, how, think about the man that we know as we read the letters of the New Testament. He describes himself to the Thessalonians as a nursing mother. He gives one of the most incredible writings that are found in human history about love. Love is patient. Love is kind. The same man who is walking around in a raging fury, who is participating and supporting the murder of Christianity, of Christians, becomes a man full of love, transformed by the love of Christ, ready to proclaim the love of Christ, praying that the church would experience and see the depth of the love of God. 
hungry, hungry for the love of God, hungry that the people he's writing to would understand the love of Christ, that they would be rooted and established in Christ and in his love. Those men are just completely different. They don't even sound like the same, they're not the same person. There's a total transformation that has taken place from angry, aggressive, murderous thug. Perhaps you might say zealous in one sense, but not zealous really for the living God. She was transformed. From opponent of Christ to servant of Christ. From a man dedicated against Christianity to dedicate the rest of his life for the propagation of the gospel and the Christian faith, and ultimately, if, history, if church history is to be believed, who would eventually give his life to be martyred in Rome. And this is really a window, I think, into the magnitude of the change that Christ would want to work in your life. I think so often Christians give up on being changed by Christ. We look around our life and we look at the struggles and the strains and we say, my life feels no different to how it was or perhaps we're more aware of the sin in our lives than we were previously. This passage says, don't give up. Actually, the Christian life, the posture of a Christian says, look, there are things about my life that I, don't, I wish weren't there, but there's a perpetual willingness to put everything on the altar. Say, Christ, would you come and change every part of my life? Would you come and see Come and search me and show me any offensive way within me. To be changed, like Paul, to see the change that Paul sees, there must be a radical willingness to allow Christ to change every part of his life. Do you have that willingness? Are you willing to say with the psalmist, Lord, come and search me? That's how Psalm 139 puts it. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That is our prayer. Every day, Lord, would you come and show me the reality of my heart? As I come face to face with the living God, so often I see new things about my own heart that need to be changed. If we're going to be confident in the culture, we have to be inviting Christ to change us. But you must see in Paul, the whole change that we see here is more than just a kind of external behavior change. It starts with a deep inner change. Think, what explains this man now? Everything has been turned on its head. Not just that he's learned to be loving, not that he's been through some sort of behavior uh, transformation program, 12-step program. No, actually, there's a deep change inside of himself. This is how Paul describes himself in Philippians chapter 3. A total change. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also I, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Everything about Paul's worldview has been taken, has been kind of pulled down in his mind. As he said, I was one who pursued all these, all these kind of Jewish principles of religious observance. All of them I just count as worthless. Everything I was living for, in one sense, is worthless. All these external markers of religious performance are worthless. 
And now the, the very thing that I thought was worthless has become my ultimate goal. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And then later on, he says, I go through all sorts of suffering, all sorts of sacrifices. What's the goal? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. I may know him. All that other stuff is worthless. The the goal of my life is that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Brothers and sisters, is that your aspiration? Is that your longing, that I may know him? The Christian life is not always about external behavior modification. It starts with a desire to know Christ, to know Christ, to love Christ. I mentioned that in the beginning of the service. Uh, The great first commandment that Jesus speaks of is to love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, soul, and mind and strength. He's saying the first thing, before we think about external influence and culture, before we talk about um, being confident in the world, the first thing is, do you love me? That is the central question of the Christian life. If I could do anything for you, I would say pursue that time with the Lord. Pursue that intimacy such that your heart would be changed and such that you would be able to say with Paul, I long to know him. I long and desire to know him better, to know Christ and to love him, to see his grace and to say his love is better than life and so my lips will praise him. So he's, he's encountered Christ. He's been transformed by Christ. And the next one, he knows his calling. Are you willing to embrace yours? See, this whole moment of encounter that Paul has is really a moment of commissioning. Paul is convinced of his commission. And so you too have been called and been sent out into the world as witnesses. You see it in this passage described, how Paul describes the encounter with God. It starts, well, kind of as it goes on, Jesus gives him the words, rise and stand upon your feet. Those are words that actually speak back to uh, God's word to Ezekiel before he commissions him as a prophet. He encounters Christ and then Christ says, rise, stand up on your feet. And I've appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and, to the, and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. He's saying, I am appointing you as a witness and a servant. And my question to you is, do you hear that same call for yourself if you're a Christian? That just as the Lord is calling Paul as a witness, I'm absolutely convinced that this calling is for all of us. Have we heard that calling? Have we received that personal commission? As if Christ is going to each one of you individually and saying, you will be my witness. You will be my witness. You will be my witness. If you have received Christ, if Christ has come into your life, Christ is calling and commissioning you to be a witness to what he is doing in your life and his work on the cross and his resurrection. They're they're inseparable. If you're a follower of Christ, then you've also been commissioned to make disciples and to be a witness to him. Have we forgotten the privilege? As I read this passage, I think some of us have forgotten the incredible privilege of what Christ is calling us to. In verse 18, this is how he describes it. To open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light 
and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins. Think about this. Through your witness, through the demonstration of Christ's work in your life, through your willingness to speak about him, some may turn from death to life. Some may turn from blindness to sight. Some will be removed from the dominion of Satan and come under the lordship of Christ. Isn't that what you want for people? Isn't that what you want for the world? It's like if Christ had given you a cure for cancer, the very first thing you might do is go and put that on a blog somewhere and, so, and publicize it to the world. Say, this is what I want. I want everyone to know this. If Christ has come and empowered you as a witness to speak about him such that some may turn from death to life, wouldn't, wouldn't we say that we have the same privilege, if not better? Have we forgotten the privilege of being a witness? See, that Paul is nothing but passive. He doesn't just say, I'll be a witness when the opportunity arises. In this moment, as he's being threatened to his life, we might think, he is willing to make a defense of Christ. He won't say, look, Agrippa, it's kind of a sense, I'm not really the bit of the main deal here. It's not really about me. I want you, I want to know, do you believe this? Even as he's on trial, he's taking that opportunity. How many opportunities might God have placed in your life? Different people. Maybe they're not going to just come up to you and say, by the way, can you explain to me how I might be saved? Maybe they're not going to start with that question. But I would wager that God has placed people in your life that you can make an intention, that you can say, I want to ask you difficult questions. I want to, I want to, I want to say, why, what made you just completely switch off from Christianity? What's behind your, your objections? Tell me about the God that you don't believe in. God has placed people into your life. And it's your choice about whether or not you'll be intentional to witness to them about Christ. I think the problem is that we love being reasonable. We want to be acceptable. Paul doesn't want to be reasonable. Paul's not really interested in what they think of him. Uh, George Bernard Shaw said this about being reasonable. The reasonable man adapts himself to the world. The unreasonable one persists in trying to adapt the world to himself. Therefore, all progress depends on the unreasonable man. Being reasonable is overrated. <laughs> the reasonable man makes no difference to the world around him. He just fits in with everybody else. The unreasonable man seeks to conform the world to himself. Which one is Paul? The unreasonable man. The man who says, look, you're missing the whole point. Now, aren't we meant to be unreasonable men and women? To say, come and see the living God. He knows his calling. Are you willing to embrace yours? Fifthly, he's not afraid of his judges. How afraid are you? Paul is unafraid of those who might judge him. And I'm convinced that the fear of people is the great enemy of the Christian life. Are you fearless yet? As I've prepared this series and been going through the messages, I would say the one thing, the number one thing I feel like the Lord's been speaking to me personally, and I suspect to many of you, is to speak to this problem of fear. I'm absolutely convinced that this is the great enemy of Christian maturity, a fear of man, a care of what other people think of you, that it holds you back in all sorts of ways. It causes stress and worry to your life as you worry what that person thought of you. It causes unfaithfulness in your life as you seek to um, kind of do the right things to please man and not to please God. Fear stops you from being outspoken. Fear means that you filter yourself and hide your faith from others. The fear of man is the great enemy of the Christian life. As I read this passage and I look at the example of Paul, my great longing is the Lord would uproot that fear in us. He would uproot it in our church. 
that we would be fearless. We wouldn't be worrying about going against culture. We wouldn't worry what people think of us because we are fearless, because we know the love of Christ. We say, I don't really care what these judges think. That is what Paul is doing, isn't it, in this moment? He's no respecter of persons. As a gripper and Festus ask him these questions, he doesn't really mind that they're the most important men of the region. He's not interested in what they think. Paul is in chains, but he's free. He's the only free man in the room because he's free of the love of the approval of man. He's free from what other people think of him. Are we free, brothers and sisters? Are we free? What is the source of the freedom that Paul has? Two things. One is knowing that ultimately God is the judge and no, one, no other man or woman is the right judge of your life. Only the living God is the judge. He does not need to worry about what other people think of him because he knows I'm going to be judged by him alone. And the second thing is that he's confident that these people can't really do anything to him. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Why do you worry about Festus or Agrippa or fill in the blank, your boss, or, or, that, or that person in your life who you worry about with their judgment of you or that friend who you think might be ghosting you or whatever it is? Why do you worry about them? All they can do is kill you. You have an eternal life with Christ. And by the way, your boss and your friend are unlikely to do that to you. So you're not worrying even less than these guys. <laughs> Paul actually genuinely is worried for it, should be worried for his life. You don't even have that problem. They can't even kill you. They can, they can only kill you, sorry. The living God is the one who's given you an eternal life. It's far more valuable than anything they can do to you. And then finally, he's confident of God's help. When you look at Paul in this moment, there's such a danger of deifying Paul, of saying, well done, Paul, aren't you incredible? But Paul wouldn't have us do that. He's a remarkable man, but everything he's achieved is because of God's work in him. So we need not collapse under the weight of becoming like Paul, but instead become confident of God's grace at work in us. You heard this in the, in the passage. Paul says he's there. Why? Because of God's help. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And of course, that, that, that really doesn't do it justice to how the living God has carried him through every sort of hardship, suffering, physical and emotional, being rejected by friends, having his whole people being brought into Jerusalem and having his whole people turn on him and wish for his death. So no, the living God has helped me. That's why I'm here. What is the secret to Paul's success? Do you ever get those YouTube adverts? Maybe it's just me, uh, where you've got somebody like in a... Um, infinity pool, sitting in the infinity pool, saying, ah, oh, look what I've achieved myself. And then it kind of gives you, and it says, I'm going to tell you the secrets to my success. It's cryptocurrency or daily, or some other rubbish. And I'm like, I don't even, I don't know why I'm getting these adverts. You can come back to that another time, uh, the love of money. But the, um, <laughs> my, what's interesting, what is the secret to Paul's success? Is it his a remarkable work ethic? Is it all, you know, we could go to all sorts of different things in human, in human terms. But what would Paul have you believe is his secret to success? And I felt like the Lord placed this on my heart um, this morning. The secret to Paul's success is the grace of God. That's how Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 15. He talks about Jesus' ministry, and he says, Last of all, he's talking about himself here, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. He's speaking about the Damascus Road moment. 
For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. His old deeds live with him in some way. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. By the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. As you survey the incredible achievements of the church in two or three decades in the book of Acts, do not think it is because of any one individual They say it is the grace of God at work within them. It is the grace of God that has made Paul the man he is. It is the grace of God that has sustained him. Remember we said that a few weeks ago when we looked at Stephen. The grace of God is about both the forgiveness that we receive and the ongoing mercy of God to strengthen and sustain you. And by the way, this is such liberating truth. It's no self-confidence, no need for self-reliance even. But the, the liberty that comes with God confidence that says, I, there's no need for me to be a superhero. No need for me to match Paul with his incredible learning or his work ethic or his mind. No, we simply walk on depending on the grace of God to change us, to reshape us, and indeed to make us witnesses. Remember, we began the book of Acts with that word, the words from Jesus to his disciples when he said, I will make you witnesses. You will be my witnesses, sorry. You will be my witnesses saying everything I intend to do, I'm going to do it by my spirit. It's only fitting that as we close, we close with the conviction that everything we aspire to, whether it's confidence or witness or even sanctification and change in the Christian life, is the result of God's work in us. Ultimately, the call isn't to emulate Paul, but to emulate Christ. Paul is a mini-Christ in this moment. So he says, imitate, in one letter, he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We see Paul being accused before his people. So we saw Christ accused before his people. Paul is innocent of his charges. Christ was innocent of the charges against him. Both were unjustly imprisoned. Both, in fact, appeared before Herod, although it's a different Herod. And both are unflinching in their courage. As we hear the call to be fearless like Paul, we hear the call to be fearless like Christ. The great lion of Judah who came in weakness, but in such strength, who will return one day as the ultimate judge, as the conquering king, who looks at the universe and looks at the world and says, you are mine, I am the rightful Lord, who's willing to challenge all those who oppose him, who's willing even to endure the cross. Why? Because his future is assured and because a crown awaits him and he trusts the Father. And so too, as we go through suffering, as we hear this great call to become the confident people of God, we follow in Christ, knowing that if we're faithful, a crown is assured. The, the words of Christ, and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. As we hear the call to be faithful, we anticipate those words. Let's hear the call to become fearless. To become people who are willing to proclaim Christ in every sphere of our lives willing to deny themselves and lay down their reputation and to become like Christ.